Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Thank you for being here. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And yet again, I have another really good guest, Blair Richwood is with me this week, and Blair has been in film, TV, theater, and literary development for 29 years. And at one time, she was the head of development for Gary Marshall's company. Well, she also is an excellent book editor and edited my book, The Me Generation by Me, Growing Up in the 60s, available at Amazon, and uh, really improved the book greatly. Blair is here, and we are going to talk about feature development, what producers and studios are looking for, what they're not looking for, some tips for writers, things not to do. This is a very informative episode if you happen to be a screenwriter. Also, some advice on pitching pilots and screenplays, what Netflix and some of the streaming services are looking for these days, and what does an editor do? What is the value of a good editor? We'll also be talking about adaptations, lots and lots of good stuff. Blair Richwood, which is not an easy name to say, by the way, Blair Richwood is with me, and here's my chat with her. Hollywood and the Okay, first I want to talk a little bit about Gary Marshall because you worked with Gary Marshall and he was an inspiration and a mentor to me and he was such a positive force in my life. For me, it was a real blessing to be associated with Gary Marshall and I assume the same is true for you. Absolutely. Talk about force in your life and inspiration. He was my first job in the business. And I believe in nepotism because (laughs) uh, Gary was really just doing a favor for his uh, college roommate, Tom Kuhn, who was head of NBC programming at the time. And my mom was his assistant. And uh, Gary tells Tommy, I've got to get a new assistant. Tom tells mom, your daughter's ready for a job. I go in for for my meeting with him, all dressed in my 80s suit and you know, um, shoulder pads. And he says, well, I'm just meeting you as a favor because I'm not going to hire a girl. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you know that. And I noticed that there was a light out in the fixture above his desk. So while I was speaking about all I was planning to do in the theater world and how I could help, I dragged a chair over from this corner. I stood on it. I got up. I unscrewed the light bulb. And I stepped back down and said, where do you keep your spares? And he said, you hired. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I, so I proved handy. <laughs> so he inspired a lot of people because he made people uh, fall in love with making his movies. And that's why he got people to do them over and over again. He was such a positive force. Yes, and he taught me that you want to nurture a film into existence. And I had another boss, a wonderful woman named Laura Ziskin, who taught me you needed to force a movie into existence. <laughs> not, not the case, not the kind you really love doing over and over again. So when you were working for Gary, you found yourself in a position of head of development for his company, which meant I'm sure that you read thousands of screenplays. What were you looking for in a screenplay? And I ask this because probably one out of every three listeners to this podcast is working on a spec screenplay. I hope they are. To find the right movie, it would have to have heart. It would have to have humor. The script had to be to tell a clear story that I could tell to Gary from the moment we walked out of the office to putting him in his car. That's the length of a pitch. Okay. So the main thing I could tell your listeners is have a story that is so crystal clear that the assistant or the DFD or the VP can tell it to their boss as they walk them to the car. Yeah, that's one thing that we learned in television because when you go in and when you pitch pilots, you are pitching to somebody who can't make the final decision. Absolutely. So that person then goes and talks to the decision maker and if your pilot is not something really clear, crystal clear that they can't just tell him in three, four sentences, you're dead because he's going, wait, what, what is it? He's a, he's a guy and he's an immigrant and he comes to the thing and, there's that, and he's got parents and like, what? I don't know what you're talking about here. So, yeah, um, let's talk about story elements. What makes for a good story? These days? These days, yeah. Now the Greek days. <laughs> yeah, the Greek days. Or we're not still in the Gary days. <laughs> they must fit the context for who you're pitching, for who your target audience is. So the elements for a good story, if you're taking it into Netflix and it plans to be a limited series, I'm working on some of those right now, those elements, they have to have a lot of um, subplots, a lot of relationships, a lot of potential for living out its, its life. An element for a good screenplay uh, has to have the genre, the plot, and the story. And a superhero. <laughs> these days. Uh-huh. Um, and somebody that we are fascinated by. Your writers might be starting with character, and I would just say make sure they've got enough flaws that they are challenged to, to overcome them and decide if they're the person who changes who changes in the story, or if they stay the same and changes everyone else. Now, you bring up an interesting point about a character who is fascinating, because you also hear people say, well, you got to have a character that the audience roots for. And I've always maintained, not necessarily... Agreed with you. You know, that you need a character who is fascinating and, and complex, and you're just interested watching him i mean you know going back to the old tv days of the 80s and dallas and jr ewing you know i mean this guy was just a, a horrible human being and yet 
he was fascinating, and you watched each week. It doesn't have to be some heroic character. Not at all. Especially with television, we need much more... I mean, I'm not talking broadcast, because I haven't done that in, in a long time, um, but I'll, although I certainly did the sitcoms with Gary. But in modern television, it's some of the most amazing writing, and it's long-form movies, and we need somebody who is complex enough, layered enough to want to follow week after week. Now, uh, HBO, I remember, used to say when we were pitching things to them that if it was a pitch that we could do for a network, they weren't interested. Agreed. Okay. And I assume it's the same thing with Netflix. Very much with Netflix. The only people, although they are in, interestingly and, and smartly getting into the I'm sure other people know this. This is, mm. may not be insider trading, but they're getting into the family film holiday business. So um, they are going to do what a network might do if you consider Hallmark a network, which it, it okay. somewhat is. Yeah. But you're right. If, it, if you could pitch it to ABC, they can't use it. That's not their audience. Right. Now, um, in terms of what Netflix is looking for, I mean, it's it's a whole different game plan, you know? It's not so much ratings. It has to do more with buzz and and keeping subscribers. So you really can do a different kind of a show. It is not broadcasting, per se. You were talking about what a script needs to have. Right. Especially in modern television, a.k.a. cable. It needs to have a character that stars want to play, that actors want to play. Right. So before all that, you're going to have to craft amazing dialogue because they'll read down the middle. They won't always read all the narration and all the juicy stuff that you put in there. And I'm speaking about the first reader, which is the agent for the talent. So if you can package a piece or if you can write a character that even not a star but a, a magnificent actor wants to do, that is half your battle truly. Or and, and if you're doing indies that you're going to direct yourself, same thing, but you also have to write a, a story then that, that a star-type director, a brilliant director, wants to get involved. You know, I basically say the same thing. Uh, somebody will give me a pilot, and I will say, well, who do you see playing her? And they'll say, uh, Julia Roberts. And I'll say, do you think Julia Roberts would want to play this? You know? Very smart mm. advice, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and it is so star-driven. I mean, at the end of the day, casting is everything. Casting is everything, and know that your script will be casting a director, a DP, a customer, a production designer. You're selling it to everyone. They all have to invest their time, their reputation, their career, their time away from their family. They're all investing in your script. And when we were talking about the pitch, one way a, your writers can manipulate the system is they've written what it is 56 pages of an amazing pilot but they're, they, they're trusting that the reader will get that and then be able to um, simulate that into a sentence to walk them their boss to their car and tell them help them out with that I put it sometimes on the title page I might put the log line there I will certainly have my clients put it in their email submitting it tell the reader what they're supposed to read this is a, a balls-out comedy about a frat boy and his lost 
twin sister, the, the nun. I submit a lot of plays uh, for festivals and things like that, and I always have a synopsis right Absolutely. on the, uh, the title page. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, just it, it tells them what it is. And it positions it for them. It's not right. the kind of synopsis that a professional reader who's doing coverage for the agency would write. It's the positioning statement. So you'll have a sense of the world, a sense of the tone, a sense, you know, have the genre right there. Teach people how to read your material and you're ahead of the game. Now, a lot of times you can tell within the first five pages whether something <laughs> is any good. What are some of the tells? That, that it's good? That it's bad. Oh. That, that it's bad. That it's like, oh, man, I can't get through 120 pages of this. Well, uh, first of all, if it's 120 pages, I send it back. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll say, see me when you're at 110. Okay. Um, because then I'll get it down to 101 with, with two seconds. Um, some of the first things, if you don't have an important piece of dialogue on page one, I'll know you're leaving money on the table. You haven't thought it through. Uh, no reader wants to look at a, the, a first page that is full of ink. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not no, We don't want a lot of description. If your descriptions are going over four lines, um, I, I know you have not gone over and edited yourself, polished yourself enough. If you have slug lines or set in a world where I'm unclear on the timing in just the first page or two, or if, I'm, if it seems like it's bigger than the story needs. If I know I'm reading a story about, uh, about roommates and it's going to be a small indie drama and you open on the world of the new planet with the spaceships fighting, <laughs> it better be a shot of a TV show you already have a clip of <laughs> that, that they're dreaming about. <laughs> yeah, and uh, another thing too is you mentioned you know the budget yeah okay because if somebody has a spec script and you see just on the first page this is going to cost more than avatar (laughs) (laughs) more than it's worth yeah that's the trick yeah we once got a spec mash script and it opened with hawkeye kind of a dream sequence where hawkeye was on the mound at yankee stadium with fifty thousand people like how are you going to do that? You know, this was before CGI. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I, how, how are you going to do that? So right away, you know, well, this person's clueless. I don't want to see a dream sequence in my first several pages. <laughs> That's I don't want to hear voiceover. Right? You know, if you have to use it later, unfortunately, voiceover is still sort of presumed from us old time readers to be a uh, a fix for a movie. Yeah. See, for me. And I've talked about this a lot in my blog. I think voiceovers and narration is lazy. It's, it is. It shows a weak writing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Instead of showing a character, the character is saying, oh, so I'm really depressed because I just flunked out of uh, Michigan State. And so um, I'm trying to find a boyfriend. And, and, and. <laughs> it's like, let's see that. Yeah. Yeah, I've sent some clients into novel development when they have a script like that. Some people some writers have a story in them. They don't know where it belongs. Mm-hmm. So one I remember one wonderful guy had a story in him that was just not a script in any way. Turns out he wanted to make a message and we rewrote it as a sermon 
And then he uh, posted it on a sermon website that sells or basically leases sermons around the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's all he needed to do. So I have my, I have a dream sermon. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if anyone is interested. I have to talk to you about that afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) You have to think about, is the story right for the medium? If you are compelled to do a lot of voiceover, maybe you're writing an essay, a novel, a short story. But if you want to, so that's some ways where I can help people with figure out, gee, instead of saying I'm depressed, I dropped out of you, miss you, whatever, I have a new boyfriend, we could do that in one line of action as she's picking at her lip, throwing away her college papers. Mm -hmm. Done. (laughs) So I used you to edit my book, The Me Generation by Me. That was so much fun, by the way. I think... It's really important for a writer, especially if you're writing something by yourself, just to have that perspective and have other people take a look at it. I remember handing you my manuscript and saying, is there a book in here (laughs) somewhere? But it was really, really helpful. You did two things. Number one, you were very respectful in terms of giving your notes. And number two, you really held my feet to the fire. You really challenged me on certain things. And, uh, you know, there there was, look, a lot of times experienced writers will write something and know this section or this line, this is pretty flimsy, you know, kind of putting a Band-Aid on it. Hopefully I can get away with it. Uh, you caught all of them. <laughs> I'm familiar with that because Gary also was a, a boy writer mm-hmm. who was writing with partners, as you have mm-hmm. been writing all mm-hmm. your life, all your career. He wrote with Jerry Belson, yeah. And, and others. He didn't like a blank page. So he'd pitch out a story and other guys would pitch it back and they would type it up. With you, uh, writing a book is a singular, lonely thing because you have a, a narrow circle of friends you trust who are good enough to give you notes uh, and not just praise. Right, right. And that's what your mom's for, you know, that's uh-huh. what your wife's for. Nice, honey. But you really do need a work spouse. You really do need somebody who can spot where you need to be better. And, you know, I should insure my eyes with Lloyds of London because I have fresh eyes and you will never have fresh eyes right. on your own right. writing. Right. And um, my fresh eyes see the potential as clear as day. So a lot of all I do is a lot of a few things. If you think I did two things, that's great. I did 20. But (laughs) if all I do with really ready material is strip away what isn't the book. Mm -hmm. And then when we have to polish, tap you to do better. Right. Well, plus mine was a memoir. So the big question in my mind was always, does anybody give a crap about this? Absolutely. <laughs> what was so great about your piece, and, and I do uh, do a lot of memoirs and edit them, developmental editing. You had your ideas. You had your book. You couldn't ever, never unremember it. So I was helping you find the pieces that were especially universal. Everybody was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Boom. You're ahead of the game right there. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but it was it was very helpful because you really got me to open up more emotionally. And I think that's a problem that 
a lot of writers have is we're really kind of afraid to expose ourselves emotionally. You know, it's funny. I, we, I used this line with somebody recently, and they said, oh, you're a script doctor. And I said, well, I'm more of a script midwife. <laughs> I, I really birth the emotion out of you. Because it's true, writers are reporting most of the time. Most people, you sort of reported your first, you know, right. the manuscript mm-hmm. I saw. Mm-hmm. And I had to, a little bit, poke and tickle and prod and scrub to help you what, uh, express how that feels. Because whether you're tuning into a, a TV or cable or watching on your damn little phone, I, uh, <laughs> uh, or whether you're going Titanic to see Titanic on your phone looks <laughs> great, no. by the way. <laughs> It's really great. Or going especially to see a play. The reason we go with groups of people to be entertained is to be moved. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. We don't go watch C-SPAN together. Right. <laughs> Unless we need to throw things at We go to be moved. And emotion moves people. Tap your emotion, you're ahead of the game. Now, I was very happy to get your input. That's really what I sought. But you must also have writers who are resistant and very defensive. How do you deal with that? I tell them I'm charging them by the hour. They can defend all they like. But uh, what really happens is I'm able to more nurture the work away from being de- having to defend it. They pay me in advance, so <laughs> <laughs> so I've already got their money. Right. But it's more that they feel like they are assured by the the notes they get, but more they see it in print with me, they are assured that I have the project's best interest in mind. It's not that I'm there to coddle them or um, or to be their therapist. I see the potential in the project, and I'm helping them get to it. So the only defense most... I don't think I've had any sort of defending or pushback unless they had to explain what wasn't on the page. That's mm-hmm. the most common. If I think that you're talking about a, a depressed woman in a small room and they thought they wrote about a girl going through her closet to pick out her wedding gown, it wasn't on the page. So they can be defensive against how it came across, but they are ultimately responsible. When they hear me read back the material to them, they understand how their words are being used. I, I work with many people on a, when we revise together. I put them on my screen. We're on the phone. We're on a Zoom program. They're watching their script. We're both looking at their outline, their script, their, their manuscript together. And so we'll read the words together. Anybody reads aloud in their head still. That's mm-hmm. why alliteration works. Alliteration doesn't work on the page. It works right. in our mental ear, right? Right, right. So when they hear things, they might defend, no, that's the word I mean. I mean strumpet. And I'll have to tell them that a, most people won't know that word or if we're right. unless we're doing But it might be, it, it might bring up other things. So it's, they're really defending something that they just didn't know yet. There's resistance to getting better, however. That's different than def- okay. being defensive Talk against Okay, talk about me. that for a second. Well, Stephen Pressman uh, says it all that, um, or Pre- oh God, Pressfield. I, I haven't. I know a Pressman. This is Pressfield. Wrote the War of Art, uh, all about the resistance. I have not read the book, but I have it on my shelf. <laughs> <laughs> we all are resisting 
um, doing our best work for fear that it won't be good enough. That's Mm. what I'm told. So I get you a little bit past that by showing you where the gold is to keep. That's a thing I learned from Gary. Man, we would highlight the, the jokes not to mess with, not to get lost. Another thing I learned from him is a way to make sure in your, well, for filmmakers, in your dailies, you don't always have to give the best joke, uh, the cut that you're going to use to the studio. You might want to save that better joke for a rough cut when they are sick of hearing the same joke over again and they need to laugh. <laughs> I know you deal with that yeah, a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot here for a second. What if you're doing a memoir of somebody and you read the book and you go, Jesus, this is the most boring human being ever. <laughs> what <laughs> has, do you do? Has not happened. Oh, okay. um, first of all, I work with people who are in the business. They so they their memoirs are interesting. Right now, I'm working on a delicious memoir uh, set in the in New York City's art performance scene and um, a love affair that wasn't supposed to happen. And this fellow wrote around. He tried to make things up. He changed the story. He moved her from being an artist to being a writer. None of it worked because he was faking. Mm. Once we pulled back all the fake stuff and stripped it by 30%, now his pass is to go back into the emotion. He felt all this emotion while he was writing it, but it wasn't on the page. I have yet to read something in a memoir that did not have a piece to offer. So boring, we'll get to it. We'll get down to the core. I do a lot of polishing of specs or adaptations. So if I don't grok the book that I'm adapting from, I'll have to ask the person, what is it you see in it? What is... What attracted you? Yeah, what about this material? Exactly. What is your process? I mean, do you... Let's say you have a manuscript. Do you read it over once just for an overview and then do notes? Or do you do notes as you read it the first time? How do you attack it? I don't really do notes, which is kind of silly because my my whole thing is called scriptnotes.com. But I don't waste a read on an overview because I will only have virgin eyes once. Okay. If I have to do a very quick read, and which a manuscript is not, and I must keep my pen off my hand. Like, for instance, as a favor, if I'm not getting paid for it and I have to just help somebody really fast with some pages, I will try not to have my pen in hand. But... When I read your manuscript, when I read any manuscript or any script, it's best for me to have my pen in hand because some people say, oh, you can't cut that because at the end, this all matters. I said, well, I'm not reading the end first. (laughs) Some people do. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. I read it as the viewer will get the material on screen. So you can't tell me something like, oh, here's a cowboy who later will seem not as good as he is. Uh Uh-uh. Here's an innocent cowboy, or whatever the hell I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the thing that writers always hate, but it's a rule we all have to adhere by. It's called kill your babies. (laughs) (laughs) It's like there are things that you may love, but they have to come out because the script or the book or the play or whatever will be better. Uh, to that point, I've, I've been called Hollywood's secret weapon by a director friend of mine because I'm able to help him p- put his babies where they belong, not where he wrote them. 
Mm. So if you are in love with something, it might be a, a word, a phrase, a line of dialogue, and if it doesn't work where it is, tell me why you love it, and I can find you the spot it will work in. Okay. It's just the ability to, A, to, I've, I'm old and I'm experienced. <laughs> <laughs> I've been around. <laughs> but I can help you um, get past your own limitations and, and your limiting beliefs. When I started, I was one of the earliest script consultants around. I was 20, this is 23 years ago, and there was Linda Seeger, maybe in McKee, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I do something different than they do, and uh, like not write books and not make a bunch of money off books. <laughs> <laughs> but these days, there are blogs and podcasts and seminars, and people are trained by quote unquote gurus to read with a checklist in mind. And I have to help writers tick all the boxes without it feeling formulaic, with still being true to themselves. Mm -hmm. So we will, you don't have to necessarily kill your baby. It might be the start of another book, for instance. It might be a core piece of the second episode. It might be the thing that is the theme that you don't want to give away in print. It might just be a shot. You know, so look for how your babies can work in other ways. Can it be a, a shot instead of a line? Mm -hmm. Can it be a theme? Can it be a motif? How to use your writing skills to keep the things you love about writing? One thing that my partner David Isaacs and I always do is we do one final pass of a script before we turn it in. And any time there is a big speech, for any reason, we go through and thin it out. Might be a sentence, might be three words here and five words there and four words there, and it ends up being like a sentence or two words. But we have never, ever found a long speech that we couldn't edit. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's just, a, again, a great lesson to writers because, you know, you write it and you think every word is like the Rosetta Stone, <laughs> but you can always cut, you can always make trims. It's not just about cutting. It's what I work with is evocative economy. Okay. Let me use one great word to use your six loose mm -hmm. words. If you as a writer are not speaking while you're standing up, if you are not speaking the dialogue that you're going to ask someone else to speak, you have not finished your script. So one of the things I learned from Gary, we were on the set of Pretty Woman. I won't say who it was who was not comfortable memorizing a long speech, but we had to break it up into smaller pieces with interaction from his co-star, <laughs> uh -huh. and it became a wonderful piece of filmic cutting. Uh, it became very much a monologue of confession, but we had the interplay that allowed him to learn the sections as smaller pieces. So put yourself in your actor's shoes. If you can't do those 500 sit-ups while you're supposedly proposing to this woman... <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, uh, you'll find yourself trimming. 
Yeah, there's an expression in the theater, take out 20 minutes and it'll run two years longer. Absolutely. And you make sure that 20 minutes is in the first act. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because the producer will cut the 20 minutes that needs to come out of act two. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody wants to avail themselves of your services, how do they do that? I'm uh, scriptnotes.com is up for a scrubbing. So it will point you to my LinkedIn page, but um, just drop a line, Blair at scriptnotes.com. Tell me Ken sent you, and okay. I will um, I will definitely give your listeners... Free a, jet skis? <laughs> a a one-hour complimentary phoner. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Fantastic. They, if they're listening to you, they're already, again, say it with me, ahead of the game. Because what, what your podcasts and what your insights in your blog deliver to people... If they actually take your advice, they'll have a stronger script, not even being a better writer. They will be a better writer from putting your tips into action. There's so many things to learn, just tiny things that can change the perception of your material. And we want we want you to succeed. We want okay. writers well, to do it. Thank you. Now you guys better call because she doesn't get any calls. I am going to be really pissed. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's all email. <laughs> but please, I answer quickly. Great, great, Blair. Thank you so much. Fun to be here in the Kenville. There you go. I hope you took notes, Blair Richwood, and take advantage of that offer. You know, we don't have too many free offers on this podcast, so take advantage of them when we do. You get that one-hour complimentary phoner, and all you have to do is email her at Blair, that's B-L-A-I-R, at scriptnotes.com. Again, Blair at scriptnotes.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine, and if you have any questions or comments, you can always email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com, and no, I'm not going to stay on the phone with you for an hour. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, as always, along with Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, and Randy Thomas, and, of course, Blair Richwood, name that I stumble on a little bit, but uh, still, she's somebody you ought to know, Blair Richwood. Talk to you again next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.